Ecclesiastes 2, starting at verse 17. So I hated life, because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun, because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish, yet they will have control over all the fruits of my toil, into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labour under the sun. For a person may labour with wisdom, knowledge and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labour under the sun? All their days their work is grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Our second reading is from Colossians chapter 3, starting at verse 22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favouritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. I'm going to pray and then we'll, uh, we'll get straight to it. Our Father God, we thank you that your word is life. And we thank you that when we, uh, when we understand your ways, we can run in the path of your commands. Because there is delight, there is freedom. Help us to see this. Amen. So you've got an outline and then uh, there are a few other... Um, treats in here which uh, I'll refer you to as we uh, as we go along but um, as we start I want you to spot the odd one out for me the cross the resurrection the Holy Spirit the church the Bible the Trinity heaven and hell work now when you compare what we're looking at this weekend with what we've done for the usual DG Weekends Away topics, it does seem a little bit unspiritual. But actually work is an incredibly important subject if you're a follower of Jesus. Most of us will spend around 80,000 hours of our lives at work. A few of us have got bosses who would demand that most weeks, it would seem. <laughs> Nearly half of your waking life will be spent at work. Now, there's a cheery thought for a Saturday morning. Nearly half of your waking life will be spent at work. And so unless you've got a deep understanding of how you honour God in your work, 
how you live as a disciple while you're actually doing your job, you will fail to be a faithful follower of Jesus. It is just not possible to be a faithful follower of Jesus unless you've got a clear understanding and a genuine commitment to then follow it through on how do I live as a disciple in the way that I work. Now, the other thing I want to say um, as we start is that what we're going to look at over the next four talks is a big part of the answer to why I am still a Christian, which might seem a rather strange thing to say. Why do I say that I'm still a Christian because of what the Bible says about work? It's this. As I've uh, lived my slightly more than 30 years, I have found... It's true. I have lived slightly more than 30 years. (laughs) Statistical error. Statistical (laughs) error. I have found the Bible to be true. And not just true in the things that it asserts about the historicity of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but also true in what it says about life, about relationships, about suffering, about friendship, about leisure and about work. There are a huge number of places you can turn to for advice on work. There's endless TED Talks. I think Dilbert is probably only outranked by the Bible when it comes to advice on work. Um, (laughs) Hence, I've included a couple of his cartoons because they're so insightful. And uh, there's friends and family. um, And while all of them have their insights, especially Dilbert, nothing comes close to the Bible. Again and again, I find that the Bible written to different cultures thousands of years ago, speaks into today's realities with a truth and a richness and a depth of insight that just nothing else does. And so one of the things that keeps me going as a Christian is when I feel shaken because I live in a minority now and the whole world around me seems to be saying, you're crazy. This is just a silly way to live. And yet again and again, I find Well, this book seems to be so right on everything it says. Even if our culture doesn't like it, reality matches it. And I find that's hugely true of work, hugely true of work. And so I hope you'll find it a very insightful weekend as we look at what the Bible has to say. Uh, On which it's helpful if you've just flicked to page five, you'll see there's um, shamelessly taken from Dan Doriani's book on work, which has got some real nuggets in it. He has a chapter where he surveys attitudes to work through history. Not every attitude of every culture, but the dominant ones that have influenced and shaped perhaps our culture today. It's really interesting because it will give you some insight into some of the assumptions that perhaps you've made or that you carry with you. See where they came from, what what drove them. So do, um, when you're bored with this talk, no, um, do in the afternoon perhaps when you've finished checking the inside of your eyelids for leaks uh, after lunch, um, Perhaps have a read of that. I think you'll find it very, very interesting. Okay, enough messing around. What is the Bible's view of work? What's the Bible's view of work? Now, what we're going to see now is probably familiar to some of us, but it is also utterly foundational to everything that we're going to look at. So it's worth just walking through it again. I think four G's, good, grind, glorious and Godward. That's a helpful summary of the the biblical theology. That is how the theme of work progresses through the Bible. It's good, it's grind, it's glorious, and it's Godward. Firstly, work is good. Indeed, you were made for work. Work is a gift from God, and it is both good and fulfilling. You see in Genesis, and you see in Proverbs 8 especially, that God is a creator, but more than that, you see that God has a, a delight 
an enjoyment, a passion, a yes about his creative work. Uh, Proverbs 8, 30 to 31, in a chapter that describes God creating the world in all his wisdom. Now, wisdom is this uh, character personified in Proverbs 8 that is alongside God, making this wonderful world. And then we read in verses 30 to 31, Then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in the human race. And at the climax of the account of creation, we find you and I are made in the image of this God, this God who delights in his work. You were created for work, and part of being made in the image of God is to be a worker, a creator like him. And then God explicitly sets humanity to work immediately after we're told. Humanity is made in the image of God and therefore is sent out to work. It's not all that's to be said. We, uh, we considered this a couple of years ago, what the image of God means. But look, Genesis 1.27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So God blessed them and said, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over it. Part of what it is to obey God and be human is to be engaged in the stewardship of this world, the rule of this world. Part of what it is to be made in the image of God is to be a worker and to find delight in work. And part of what it is to obey God's commands to humanity is to be involved in the stewardship of his world, whether it's tilling the ground as a farmer, like many of you, greasing the wheels of the economy as a banker, or raising, I noticed the wheels of the economy, not the palms of anybody, uh, okay. <laughs> raising the next generation as a parent or teacher, we were designed for work, and we were designed to find satisfaction and delight in work. The successful deal, the student who, oh, they now get it. The cake that rises perfectly, the satisfied customer, the empty in-tray. Each of those things, each of those things is an echo, a glimpse of a pleasure that God knew when he finished his creation and looked at it and said, it is very good. Uh, the London Assembly produced a report on uh, mental health and physical health in work, March 2018. And it was no great surprise, but it was striking how clear the report was that those who are not working have poorer mental health, poorer physical health, consult their GP more and have higher death rates. And it's not just a sort of correlation. People like that tend not to have work because as soon as those same people got back into the workplace, all those symptoms dropped off a cliff. It's really hard not having work because we were made for work. Being out of work is really difficult. And so those amongst us in our congregation who are out of work need our care and our support. And we ought to expect them to find it hard. But, but, work is good for you is not an experience that we find resonates deep in our souls very often. Because work is grind. Work is grind for us now because we experience the effects of the fall in our work. I don't know how many of you feel a swelling sense of delight as you wake up on a Monday morning and think, another week of work. We find work difficult and frustrating. And that's the experience uh, described so powerfully in that uh, reading we had in Ecclesiastes 2. I think there are three reasons biblically that work is such a grind. Firstly is the finitude of me. This is what Ecclesiastes 2 talks about in 18 to 21. 
I hated all things I toiled for under the sun, because I must leave them to one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they'll have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I've poured my effort and skill under the sun. How meaningless. The, the movie about Schmidt brings this home brilliantly. It's a slightly strange film for Jack Nicholson to uh, act in. It's an odd movie, but um, I think it must have been written by a friend and he did it as an affair because it's just so not like him, really. But there we go. It's, uh, the, at the beginning, he's retiring, basically, and he's been 30 years in the same company. And a month or two later, he goes back in to, to see the, the guy who's taken over from him and to see how he's getting on. And the guy just doesn't even have the time of day for him. And as Schmidt uh, leaves the office, uh, feeling a little bit um, crushed by this, he goes down and he sees in the, um, the, in the rubbish area at the back of the, the building all the boxes of files and systems that he had created and poured himself into over 30 years just being tipped out. 30 years worth of work. But the guy who comes next and just thinks, nah. And all of his life's work amounts to nothing. And the truth is, it doesn't matter how brilliant you are at your job. You will retire, or you'll be moved on, or you'll get ill, or you'll die. And who knows who will come after you. And that's pretty miserable when you think about it. Pretty miserable. And the finitude of me can, brings a huge amount of just meaningless into our work. There's also the fallenness of me. I mess things up, and so do you. I let down my boss. I fail to manage my juniors as I should. All of us do that. None of us are the perfect worker. None of us. The fall affects us. They call it the noetic effect of sin. Your mind is distorted. None of us, uh, in our interpersonal relationships, or in our just competence to do our jobs, are ever quite the people we want to be. There's also the frustration of work itself. So in Genesis 3, it's clear it's not just that humanity will have a, a distorted relationship with work. It's that work itself, the experience of work, is ruined in some way. So in Genesis 3, God says this to Adam, he said, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Work becomes painful and frustrating. There are, in Genesis language, there are thorns and thistles because Adam is a farmer. Today's language, there are IT meltdowns and replacement bus services. The things that make work just utterly miserable. And the cursing of the ground, it should also lead us to expect that it's not just in an individual relationship with work thing that things will be difficult. It also should lead us to, to, find what, to expect to find what is the reality, which is also there is an institutional level of the fall. What do I mean by that? I mean that there are corporate failings and corporate sins. Whole systems, whole organisations, whole teams, whole ways of work are corrupted and bring pain and frustration because of sin. So I... Um, I was given for my birthday uh, The History of the Spitfire, which is a fabulous book um, when you're sad like me. Um, uh, it's very, very interesting. And uh, one of the things that's, um, it's, it's basically all the people who flew it as it was, de uh, it was developed from the 30s right through to the early 50s. 
And one group of people that it focuses on are the ATA girls. Very, very interesting group, 168 of them. They're the first group of women in British history to win um, equal pay for equal work. So very, very uh, important in, in the history of this country. But one of the reasons they were able to do that is because they were incredible pilots, the ATA girls. So the, the guys and girls who flew the, the, what they were was they were auxiliary civilian pilots who delivered planes from the factories to the frontline squadrons. Now, the ATA girls had to be able to fly any one of 65 different planes at about an hour's notice in all weathers. They were incredible pilots, some of the best pilots that there were. Their skills were just absolutely top-notch. Uh, Mary Ellis and Joy Lofthouse were pretty much household names in the RAF because they were they knew that even in you know, pea soup fog, brand new aircraft designations they could be trusted to bring them safely. End of the war, guess how many of the 168 were able to find work in the aviation industry? Zero. Because of systemic sexism in the aviation industry. There's nothing in the Bible that says a woman can't be a pilot. But the fall affects not just my individual relationship with my work, it affects the whole corporate structures, uh, corporations, systems. We're, the fall affects it all, and that affects our experience of work because we work in corporations, in structures, in organisations. And so we ought to expect to find work cultures are horrible sometimes. But that's not the end of the story, thankfully, in the Bible. The Bible's a book of hope. And thirdly, we find work is glorious. We will enjoy work in paradise. So Revelation 22.3 says, we will serve him forever in the new creation. Perhaps more surprisingly is uh, Luke 19.11 to 27, the parable of the talents. Work is described as God's reward to his faithful servants. So he gives them responsibility to manage some cities. And those who do it well, he says, congratulations, Here's some more work with greater responsibility. And you kind of think, OK, so come judgment day, I have to get my Christmas face on. Just what I always wanted. More responsibility. Great. Uh, but the thing is, work in God's new creation will be glorious and fulfilling and rich and wonderful. In the new creation, we'll know even better than what Adam and Eve had, which is where God said, look, here is a little garden called Eden. It's perfect. I made it from the raw materials of the world out there. Now go out and bring the order of the garden to that wild, raw, untamed creation. Dig down, find iron ore and make tools. Turn silicon into, uh, into microchips. Go and explore. Go and develop. Go and technologize. There's a new verb for you. Um, God can create new words. I'm not God. I'm not God. But that's the, the excitement of Adam and Eve going out into the new creation is the excitement that you and I will have. Work will be fulfilling and rich and rewarding and we'll live forever to enjoy it. But what about now as we live before that day? Well, now work is Godward. Work is Godward. So the New Testament teaches that work is governed and sanctified by the gospel. It's a Godward activity. So um, turn up to Colossians 3.22 to 4.1. So work is still good. The experience it will be good and it will be grind. But in that is the promise that it will be glorious. And the experience now, though, is changed by this. Colossians 3.22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters and everything and do it not only when their eye is on you, 
to carry their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you're serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs. And there is no favouritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know you also have a master in heaven. What changes everything, although we experience the fall still, what changes everything is whom we now work for. We had uh, Rory Stain in for um, a guest event a couple of years back. I'm not sure how many people were able to get along to that. Now, Rory Stain was a South African policeman, tough guy, very tough guy. And he you know, talked about his police work in the, in the late 80s. And, you know, it was hard work and sounds like he was pretty good at it. But what really changed his attitude to work is when he was given his next assignment, which was to be the personal bodyguard and chief of protection for Nelson Mandela. And what was a job became an incredible honour and privilege as he found this man he despised and thought was probably a terrorist was actually the most noble and decent of men. And he talked about work in a totally different way when he talked about what it was like to, to look after Nelson Mandela for, for those years and get to know this man. And the truth is that for you and me, work will still be frustrating and difficult in this world. Whatever job you have, and no matter how mature your faith, work will still be difficult and frustrating. But you have an ultimate boss far better than Mandela. Now your work is not just done for your earthly boss, it is done for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is a total game changer. You're working for him. What emerges from this passage was revolutionary in the history of, of the working world. So the medieval Catholic Church had taught for hundreds and hundreds of years that the work that truly pleased God was preaching and praying. So if you wanted to be a spiritual person close to God, you needed to get out of the working world and become a monk or a nun. There was a sacred secular divide. You should probably have the Bible in the sacred hand, really, for that one. <laughs> there was a sacred secular divide in the world. But as brave theologians began to study the Bible again in the 15th century, they realised this was just absolute rubbish. William Tyndale, the greatest Briton in many ways, wrote beautiful poetry that exposed this. He said that he wrote this, and this is one of the reasons that the Roman Catholic authorities had him killed. He said, There is no work better than another to please God, to pour water, to wash dishes, to be a shoemaker or an apostle, all is one. To wash dishes and to preach is all one as touching the deed to please God. Such wonderful words. You've got them printed in your book that I think and talk to. In other words, God is equally concerned with what we do Monday to Friday as what we do on Sunday. So God is pleased and glorified when a small group leader works really hard to prepare an excellent study on Romans 3, 21 to 26. And people in the group understand how it is that God has forgiven them in a way which gives them deep assurance of God's love and their forgiveness. But God is also glorified and pleased when that same small group leader goes into work and works hard and diligently and honestly and debugs an IT system or prepares and teaches a stimulating lesson that really engages the kids or writes an investment analysis that is well-researched and accurate. If those things are done with a conscious, prayerful desire to please and glorify God, they bring him glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31 
whatever we do for the glory of God brings glory to God. So that the most menial tasks in the eyes of the world are hugely meaningful if they're done for Jesus. The most menial tasks in the eyes of the world are hugely meaningful if they're done for Jesus. There are uh, two great commissions or mandates given to humanity by God. Uh, there's the creation commission, Genesis 1.28. All humans are to be involved in bringing order to and taking care of the world. We looked at that a moment ago. There's also the great commission, Matthew 28. All followers of Jesus are to go out and make disciples of all nations. But the great commission doesn't cancel out the creation commission. We are still to be involved in this world, even as we prioritise saving people for the world to come. So working your day job is part of how you serve God in this age, in this world. OK, what does this mean in practice? Let's, uh, let's get practical as we, uh, as we come to the end. So two things, really. Don't overvalue work and don't undervalue work. Don't overvalue work. Don't expect too much from it. Don't forget the fall. Serve Christ, not work. When I, um, when I started working in the city, there was uh, one of the intake there were, I think, 30 of us started at the same time as graduates. And one of them said that she had wanted this job for as long as she could remember. And she'd identified this particular firm as the firm she wanted to work for. And it had quite an impressive building. And while she was studying in London for her professional exams, she would come in the evening sometimes and just stare up at the building and imagine herself in there. It was just, it was her idol. I mean, she, she didn't need to get down on her knees and bow to the place. But if she could have, I think she probably would have. It was, and don't let work become an idol. Well, none of us are that stupid. Well, be careful. See, an idol is just something I look to to provide what only God can provide. There are lots of ways, actually, the Bible talks about idols and lots of ways theologians have helpfully taught us about idols. But basically, it's something that I look to to provide what only God can provide. So, if I look to work to give my ultimate identity or value or security or to make my life worth living, it's become an idol. Now, here's a really helpful distinction to help us see how work can be an idol. There are ends idols and means idols. Ends idols and means idols. Now, an ends idol is something you want more than anything else. A means idol is something you look to or trust in to give you what you want more than anything else. Now, God is, of course, the ultimate ends and the ultimate means. He is the thing that our souls most want when we're in our rightful minds. And he is the one who can give us everything that we want and need. But work is a classic means idol. It's not an end. In that very few of us love our jobs and want... Oh, I just I, I long to put career advancement ahead of family and friends and church and, and my own moral compass. Very few of us feel an aching longing for work when we're on the beach on holiday. But what we do do is look to work to provide the things I really, really want. The status it brings. I'm a teacher, banker, lawyer, doctor. The money that we earn that gives us our security for the future or that provides us with the holidays and leisure pursuits we really live for. Work can so easily become the means, the idol I look to, to, to give me what I most want in life. And so we can live as if it is work, not Jesus Christ, that provides the things that I, I have to have if life is to have meaning. 
And the problem with idols is they can't provide what they promise. They'll always ultimately disappoint. It didn't take long before uh, Kate, I remember, had a, a terrible boss in one of the one of her seats in the first couple of years at work, and it just destroyed her to find that actually she could be treated this badly by the place she longed for. And then she, when her performance wasn't up to it, the idol spat her out. See, only Jesus Christ will never let you down. And only Jesus Christ will forgive you when you let him down. So don't make work an idol. Okay, I get that. Don't make work an idol. How do I tell if work's an idol? How do I tell? Because very few of us say explicitly, work is my God. So how can I see if it subtly has become God in my heart? Functionally, day to day, become my God. Well, the first thing is share the gospel. I don't say that just because well, our ministers always say share the gospel, don't they? Um, it's because when I share the gospel, I am doing something that nobody is going to, it's not going to grow my career, unless you're Nick and that's your job at church, um, <laughs> to be the evangelist, um, to train us in evangelism. Uh, but none of us will find that sharing the gospel with colleagues grows our career. It just won't do that. And so when I do, when I look for opportunities to speak of Christ, I, I show, no, 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 work is not my God, God is my God. And for many of us, I guess the first step is just being willing to be known as a Christian at work. There was a very depressing article a couple of years back in The Independent about Christians in the city. And basically, the long and short of it was the, the group of people that they interviewed all said, I could never admit I was a Christian at work. So one said, if my colleagues or my boss knew I needed prayer to get through the day, that would be me done. So I go to a lunchtime Christian meeting, but I tell them I'm off to see the physio. It's so depressing to read that. Now, if I want to be sure that work is not taking God's place in my heart, then I need to be honest and open about I'm a Christian. Because that will cost me credibility. But it shows that I put God first. Obviously, do it sensibly, graciously, winsomely. First time you turn up to a client pitch. So before this pitch begins, let me tell you about the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But find, <laughs> but find real ways that you can be you and be open about your faith. Don't hide it. Because the, the main reason we hide it <coughs> is because we want to protect our career more than we want to honour God. And that is idolatry. Uh, secondly, um, just make decisions that put God first. Uh, be a practical Christian in, thing, in things to do with work, not just a theoretical one. You know, you get a great job offer, but it's a, a company with a very unhealthy culture. What do you do? Or it takes you to a place with poor church life. Or it's going to take you away from being part of church or small group. Or you haven't even thought of whether it will do those things. I was talking to somebody who... I'd spoken to his boss, said, look, I really want to be um, a small group, a high-pressure job, and church on Sunday and small group are, are commitments to the jobs. And the boss basically said, no, that's not the way it works around here. And so he's looking for another job. Now, it's a competitive industry, and it's not proving easy, but he said, no, I'm a Christian. I can't stay at a place which isn't going to let me be a Christian. The other thing to do is to learn to rest. Uh, sharks die if they don't keep moving. You are not a shark. 
<laughs> Biology lesson. That's just a freebie. Just a freebie. Uh, although, having, I've seen some of you at the breakfast buffet here. <laughs> and it has looked like an Attenborough documentary. Um, but rest. Because when you rest, you say, it's not all down to me. I can trust God and leave things where they are. Now, that's a particular struggle for a group called Insecure Overachievers, of whom I know there are a number in this room. Insecure overachievers are people who doubt their own worth and tend to not recognise or explain away their successes and fear that they'll, they'll lose their job if they don't continually exceed expectations. It tends to be more girls than guys, and I know a number in this room are exactly in that category, and you find it desperately hard not to jump when the boss says, and desperately hard to turn off the email and not to be available and just to rest. But if you trust God, you'll learn to. Now, you've got to distinguish the things that might stop rest. Sometimes it's sin in me. I've idolised work. Sometimes it's a temporary crisis in a fallen world. Um, so my grandfather worked. Um, at one point, he was working regularly, kind of 60, 70 hours a week um, before commuting. And then he took on a weekend job as well. He wasn't a workaholic. He was a sensible Christian man. The weekend job was... Um, was an air raid warden. It was the Second World War. You know, it's just a different kind of, you know, that was a temporary crisis. So, that, you know, let's be sensible, let's be nuanced, let's be wise, let's recognise the different pressures, but learn to rest if you don't want to be one who idolises work. Secondly, don't undervalue work. Serve Christ in your work. So don't fall into the monastic view that secular work is unimportant. To put it in Bible language, your work is part of your worship. Explicitly taught, Romans 12, we'll get there soon enough. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual act or reasonable act of worship. In other words, your physical life is part of your worship. Your work is worship. Challenge and an encouragement. And we'll finish with the encouragement. There is a danger that as Christians, we just don't see this clearly. We reduce honouring Jesus to speaking to my colleagues over the lunch about my faith, which is a great thing to do. And I'm not honouring Jesus if I'm not looking for opportunities to speak of Christ. But I should work in a way that means I serve God in my work, not just in the gaps in my work. Don't compartmentalise your life. And it can be dangerous because if you get in the habit of compartmentalising your life, you'll stop seeing what you do in work as mattering to God. And therefore, you're much more likely to cut corners and fall into ethical traps because you're just not engaging as a Christian with what you do. Do work hard as well. There's lots um, in the Bible against idleness, partly written into a Greek culture. Read in the summary in the booklets and you'll see what I mean by that. Greek culture, which saw workers uh, as just awful, um, uh, only suitable for slaves, for gods and the higher mortals, uh, you should have a life of contemplation. And so the Bible says again and again, no, 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 work hard in the New Testament. We're not a Greek culture, but we, even as we idolise work, we despise it and, and we want leisure. So we want retirement and we want to get out of work quickly to, to get on with our leisure. And the danger is as Christians, we can start to have this low view of work our culture does rather than the high view of work the Bible does that sees it as noble and God-honouring activity. So you are meant to work for your employer as if for Jesus. That means 
the minimum required can never be good enough, really. Now, you need to nuance. This is a weekend away. You've got time to discuss those things and work them out. But if I'm offering my work to Jesus, then I'm not thinking about the minimum required. Perfectionists are going to hear that differently from lazy people. And we all need to discuss those things. I think that's a particular challenge for those unmotivated about work. Some of us just, we hate our job and wish I was doing something different. And so my job gets just the lowest I can get away with. Or perhaps I I wish I wasn't uh, doing um, this particular sort of work. I wish I was um, raising children, doing that work, or in a different career, or or studying, just doing something else. And so we're just not honouring God where we are. And we need, to, we need to rethink that. We work for Christ, and he deserves our best endeavours. But, but, there is wonderful encouragement in the biblical framework of work. See, when work is liberated from the need to provide you with ultimate meaning and with your true identity, when you have healthy expectations that it will be good, but it's going to be hard, graft, well, then you're able to derive real satisfaction from what there is there. Ecclesiastes 2, 24 puts it, A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. And many of us will find that for all the frustrations, work is an area where we still get to use our abilities, accomplish real goals, even if it's just emptying your inbox, contribute to society and the economy, and earn money in an honest way that meets my needs and provides for others. I remember, I mean, these days everything just is done electronic, but, but I remember holding my first paycheck, um, like lifting it up like Simba at the beginning of the line, being like, <laughs> I have earned this, it is marvellous. And it's a great feeling. Didn't even clear the overdraft, but that's a different story. <laughs> it was just a great feeling, and that's a good thing. You should thank God for it. But there is an even greater encouragement. As we work, as we saw in Genesis 1, 27 to 28, we exercise God's rule and authority on the earth as his image bearers. God sends us out to exercise his rule in his world. In Martin Luther's words, amazingly, God milks cows through the milkmaid. Or let me put it this way. When you work, you are God in disguise. One of the ministry interns saw that in the, uh, in the booklet and said, I think there's a typo here. I said, no, 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 that's not a typo. When you work, you are God in disguise. What do I mean by that? God is the king of the universe he created, but he calls on us to rule the world. He doesn't stop ruling, but he exercises his rule through you and me. So Luther writes, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we ask God to give us this day our daily bread. And he do does give us our daily bread. He does it by the farmer who planted and harvested the grain, the baker who made the flour into bread and the person who prepared our meal. Isn't that wonderful? You are the answer to people's prayers. When people pray, Lord, give me my daily bread. Uh, there are people here who work in uh, equity and finance and investment who ensure that there are pensions that will pay out. You are helping answer prayers people have made to God. It's an extraordinary thing. When people pray for their children, teachers in the room, you're often answering those prayers. Anybody who's involved in work is in some ways answering the prayers of God's people and exercising the rule of God's authority in this world. 
and in a city that is full of people living in the frustration of a daily experience of work that just hasn't lived up to their their wrongfully conceived dreams and hopes, you have a better story for work. One that makes sense of the reality we experience and you have a better reason for work because you have a better boss. And so as a Christian, you can get up in the morning and say to yourself, I go to work to serve the Lord and to bring him glory. And I go to work as God in disguise. That's your calling and your privilege. Let me pray. Our Father God, we thank you for the glorious truth of the Bible. And we pray that it would transform not just our, um, our attitudes, but also our experience of work. That um, we would uh, not fall into the trap of overvaluing it, idolising it, but neither will we undervalue work. And our Father, we thank you that we have this incredible privilege that we now work for the Lord Jesus, whatever we do. And we have this extraordinary reality that we are God in disguise as we serve you. Amen.